Turn to chapter 16 of Benware, and we'll look at the book of Job. The authorship and date is given at the beginning on page 165, 165. Since the author is not identified, it's impossible to determine human authorship. Many men, including Moses and Job himself, have been suggested. But generally speaking, the idea that has come to conservative scholars, the held belief is that the book of Job would have been passed down orally and then written down in a written format during the days of King Solomon. That's the most likely scenario. So Job would have lived maybe during the days of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, that era, but in the book written down later on. Now turn to page 166, and we'll look at the basic outline of Job. You first have the prologue, chapters 1 and 2, then human wisdom and suffering, chapter 3 through 37, divine wisdom and suffering, chapters 38 through 42, and the epilogue, chapter 42. So you have, first of all, the opening, then what humans say about about suffering, then what God says about suffering, third, and then fourthly, the closing. Okay, so looking at um, the page 166 on the left-hand side, the upper column, Job was indeed a historical figure. Ezekiel refers to him. James refers to him. Several facts indicate that he lived in the days of the flood of Noah, or after the days of the flood of Noah, and before the time of Moses. Here are the reasons conservative scholars think this. First of all, the length of Job's life points to the time shortly after the flood in which men had long lifespans. Job lived 140 years after he had fathered 10 children. Second, Job is seen functioning as a priest for his family, and that's a typical role in the patriarchal days, but not after the nation is formed. Third, the Mosaic law and important revelations of prophets are never referred to in all the theological discussions of Job and his friends. Had they known the law of Moses, surely they would have referred to it. It's highly unlikely that they would speak of God and his ways and never refer to the authoritative scriptures. If they existed at that time, they would have referred to them. Setting of the book of Job is, therefore, in the days of the patriarchs, the writing of the book, however, may have been much later. Now, some important data about the book of Job. Again, page 166, under the basic outline, you have the inset there. Keyword is suffering and sovereignty. Key chapter is chapter 1, which sets the stage for all the dialogue that happens. Chapter 1, verse 20 through 22. Chapter 8, verse 3 through 7. And chapter 41 and 2 give the key verses. Job then his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and then a fourth friend that comes in, Elihu. They're the key characters of the book. Job is the main character in the story, and the geography is somewhere in Palestine. Okay, to the purpose of the book of Job, page 166, left-hand column. The book of Job addresses the issue of suffering of people who are righteous. So get that right. The righteous do suffer. This must be held in contrast to many preachers today who seem to take Bible verses out of context and give promises that God only intends blessing and peace and no pain. But the righteous do suffer. 
they did so from the beginning. And so, whereas the suffering distress of the wicked has not been as great a problem to most people, the suffering of people who love and serve the Lord God is another matter. If God is sovereign and loving, then why does he permit his own to experience terrible suffering? Although the book of Job might suggest some answers, an intellectual solution is not really given. A spiritual solution is given, namely the absolute sovereignty of God. When God met Job, he did not demand answers, but humbly submitted to him, to his sovereign God, recognizing in a fresh way the creator-creature relationship. Now you can look at the chart on page 167, giving the uh, dating of the writing of the book of Job, the life was in Genesis, that when he lived in patriarchal times, and then the final form of the book looks like it might have arrived in the time of King Solomon. Okay, special considerations on the book of Job. It's the longest poem in the Old Testament. It is a combination of prose and poetry and utilizes dialogue and monologue. So conversation back and forth and simply uh, a conversation with oneself, monologue, to speak alone. The prose sections are simply interpreted normally as one would interpret any sort of historical writing. And the poetry section is approached with the normal interpretation, but recognizing special features of poetic literature, parallelisms, vivid word pictures, expressive figures of speech. Now, it must also be remembered that the speakers in the book did not have direct revelations uh, of Moses and the prophets to rely on. They had their limited knowledge of numerous subjects, and in the progress of God's revelation in centuries that would follow, a much clearer understanding of God and His purposes would be possible. So we can imagine that they didn't have Moses in the writings, they didn't have the Pentateuch, but they did have oral tradition. And we know that those things, those uh, great histories, would have been passed down by memory, by verbal tradition, uh, from generation to generation. And so Job and his friends had that to go off of. Now, let's continue looking at the uh, the summary of Job. And we can go, for that, we go to page 167. At the bottom of the page, the right-hand side, the dramatic poem begins with a prologue that sets the stage for the main conversation of the book. The prologue is the testimony of God that Job was a genuinely righteous man. He was also a man of great wealth. And these essential facts about Job are related. And then the scene shifts to heaven, where at the same time as Job is living, something else is happening. There's a spiritual realm, and God is in charge of that as he is the physical realm as well. And in this spiritual realm, and we're on page 168, the left-hand column, uh, we see Satan and other angelic beings appearing before God at God's command. Now, we don't know the inner workings of this. If God orders Satan to do it, Satan is absolutely commanded to obey. There is nothing uh, like dualism in the Bible. There is a belief that God and Satan are struggling together, and Satan has power, and God has power, and who knows who's going to win in the end. Or even the belief that we know God will win in the end, but 
it could possibly be that there's a real struggle because Satan has power separate from God. This is not a biblical concept at all. And certainly Job doesn't represent this. Satan is responsible to God. Satan, in fact, is a creation of God. He's a fallen angel. And furthermore, all of the power that he uh, has is ultimately derived from God. God's not responsible for the evil that Satan causes. However, God does give all the energy, everything that's necessary for Satan to operate, and it works out to the greater glory of God through all of it. And let's continue in the, the text. There's a series of four catastrophic attacks. Job lost all his great wealth and experienced the loss of all ten of his children. And in spite of these terrible events, the brokenhearted Job still worshipped the Lord. You see the great statement, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And this is all in chapters 1 and 2. But Job remarkably remains faithful to the Lord. Now, as three friends come along, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and there's a series of conversations that happen. At first, they sit with Job and they comfort him, but then they debate. They give three rounds of speeches and they discuss uh, why Job had to have sinned in order to have suffered. That's their argument. Now, let's look towards the bottom of page 168. This was the hand of God that caused it. They reason, Job's friends that is, that truly righteous people are not punished of God, whereas wicked men are punished. Therefore, since God was clearly punishing Job, he must not be truly righteous. He must have secret sin. Now, assuming Job's guilt, they encouraged him to confess. But Job didn't know what he had done wrong. Now, on the right-hand column, after three rounds of speeches, a younger friend named Elihu appears, and he seems to be closer to the truth, but he did rebuke Job for justifying himself before God. Now, this all comes to a head in Job chapter 38, where God speaks from heaven and reveals himself in two magnificent addresses. Job quickly learned how great God is and how insignificant Job was. His response was one of submission and surrender. He puts his hands over his mouth and says, I know nothing. And God chastises him and agrees he knows nothing. The story ends with Job's health restored and his children being, uh, 10 more children being born to him and even twice the wealth that he had originally had. And just mark the words that our wealth and our health ultimately is in the days of our resurrection when we get to heaven and we're perfectly complete in the Lord Jesus Christ and we have all the, all the wealth of an heir, a co-heir of Jesus Christ and all of those blessings. So even if God had not restored to Job in this life those things which he took away, God would have done no evil. And thus we conclude the book of Job and we're ready to enter into the book of Psalms.